Almighty God, Lord Jesus, our only and solid living hope, in whom our souls are anchored. Holy Spirit, you have sealed that hope within us. We belong to you, and no one can take us out of your hand. As we celebrate this morning in song, we celebrate with our hearts. We do not deserve this kind of love. And yet you have loved us with an unending love, an overwhelming love. We are your children. And so we come into your gates with thanksgiving. We come into your gates this morning with praise. And as we do so, our hearts break for your children around the world who are suffering in places where they are persecuted for your name's sake, in places where they have faced horrible devastation. Some in California right now with the weather, those in Turkey who have lost homes. We think of the horrid and horrible war in Ukraine. Father, on this anniversary of that invasion, we would ask that you would surround your people with your peace that you would guard their hearts and their souls, that you would use your children to be beacons of light and beacons of hope in a world that for them is filled with darkness. Father, we pray that you would work against the evil that is bringing so much pain in Ukraine. We pray for your children who are also in Russia, that you would give them wisdom and boldness to love and not to hate. And Father, we ask that in all of this, your name somehow would be glorified and that many, many would come to know you as Savior. And now as we open your word, we ask that your spirit would open our hearts, that we would hear, that we would understand, and that we would respond to your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. So good to worship the Lord together, isn't it? Thank you, choir, orchestra, Tim, for leading us. It's um, so wonderful to sing praises to him, to worship him, to honor him together. We have been focusing this month on growing as a house of prayer, and I hope Many of you are taking time to read notes that have been written out there, things that we're learning as a house of prayer. I hope you have written notes and that if you haven't, maybe some of you finished that little booklet, some of you are finishing it. I hope that you found nuggets of truth in there that can be an encouragement to you. I've asked Jason to come this morning. Jason Ronkowski is um, one of our young men who has really brought a lot of joy to my life as I see God bringing young people into our church who are really vibrantly committed to Christ. So Jason, would you share with us a little bit of what you've learned? Hello, my name is Jason Ronkowski. Prayer by its nature is a humbling process. To acknowledge we are inadequate by coming before the Lord of the universe, on our knees, seeking peace, wisdom, grace, and mercy. I pray to make the beginning of Psalm 60 true, Psalm 62 true in my own life. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Amen. Thank you so much, Jason. I hope we continue to grow individually as people of prayer and corporately as a community, as a house of prayer. 
as we saw at the end of January, it's one of those rare places in Scripture where we are told explicitly, this is the will of God for you. His will is that we never stop praying. And when he said that, he was speaking corporately to the church, not just to one individual at a time, but as a congregation, as a church, that we would be a house of prayer. This morning, we are back in Hebrews, back in Hebrews chapter 7. And the focus of this section of Hebrews 7 is hope. And we have to ask ourselves, what really is hope? We hear all kinds of um, uses of that word on a daily basis. And some of us may think hope is just really wishful thinking. We're sort of hoping against the odds that something will happen. Sometimes we, we think of hope as dreams that are not really grounded in reality. You know, I hope I can be super rich. I hope I can someday live in Hawaii. I hope that I'll win the lottery. Or maybe really good things, but probably not grounded in the reality of this world. Can't everyone just get along? I hope everyone gets along. Well, clearly everyone's not going to get along in this world. Not with sin ravaging all of us as it does. Sometimes we use hope in a, in a good way, but there's not a whole lot of substance to it. We'll, we'll talk to somebody, maybe just this morning, somebody in church, and they tell us they've had a hard week or they're, they're not feeling well, and we, we say, I, I really hope you feel better. But there's nothing we can do, nothing that we can change. It, it's sort of an aspiration, but it's not grounded in, in any sort of power or reality. So is hope real or not? A very typical inscription on the graves at the time that this letter to the Hebrews were written, it's found in many tombstones of that day, it says this, I was not, I became, I am not, I care not. I mean, sort of emptiness, right? I never was. I became something, I, now I'm nothing again and I don't care. The problem is there's so much, not only hopelessness there, it's false. They think they are not. They actually are. God created us to live for eternity, and we will either live in his presence for eternity with great joy or in his absence for eternity with great pain and sorrow. So is hope real, or is, it, is, there, is there a hope that can sustain us when life is really hard? Is there a hope that is so grounded in truth that no matter what circumstances we are facing, no matter what the world throws at us, we can stand? Is there such a thing as that kind of hope? Well, in Hebrews chapter 7, beginning with verse 18 down to verse 22, we see that this high priest whose name is Jesus, gives us a better hope. That's the way the Holy Spirit describes it, a better hope. Because real hope is anchored in Jesus, and it's only anchored in Jesus. We've actually just sung that, that he is our hope. Real hope is anchored in Jesus. Every other hope we have on earth 
is going to let us down at one point or another. It will never completely satisfy. Now, in verses 11 to 17 last week, we were looking at Jesus' indestructible life, and the power of His indestructible life gives us everything we need when we trust in Him. One of the things that that indestructible life of Jesus offers to us, provides for us, is a much better hope than anything in the world can offer. So as we read this morning, I think you'll see the page numbers on the screen. I, I want to start with verse 16, the end of where we were last week, and then we're going to read down to verse 22. Verse 16, speaking of Jesus, has become a high priest not on the basis of legal requirement according to bodily descent. He's not a Levite descended from Aaron, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. We looked at that last week. That's summarizing what we saw last week. If there is a new high priest, there needs to be a new covenant, a new law, because the old priesthood was completely caught up in that old covenant. So this, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it's not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Real hope is anchored in Jesus. And he introduces to us through this indestructible life of his that we looked at last week, a better hope. It's a better hope because through this hope, we draw near to God. That's verse 19. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, verse 18 says, the former law has been set aside, and we looked at last week why that law was set aside. The law wasn't bad, we're bad. The law was good, it showed us God's standard, but because we're bad and we can't live up to that standard, it's useless to change us, it's useless to help us, it's useless to save us. And they would constantly spill the blood of goats and animals, but they couldn't forgive human sins. They could just simply cover it, recognizing the horror of our sin and making it vivid before people. The law reminded us that we're sinners. That's what it did. And, and as we're reminded that we're sinners, it reminded us that we're separated from God. So there's this huge veil in the temple, about four inches thick. Think of a massively thick blanket. You talk about heavy blankets. You can buy heavy blankets to stay warm in the winter. I mean, this blanket you would have suffocated under. Massive, heavy veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And that was always kept there, separating us from the presence of God and access to God. The first commandment is set aside not because it was bad, but because we're bad. And Jesus fulfilled it. We looked at that last week. Jesus fulfilled it for us. So having fulfilled all of the law, he kept all of the law perfectly. It has been kept. 
So it can be set aside now. And Jesus can bring to us a new covenant that we're going to see a lot in the rest of Hebrews. It's mentioned in verse 22. And so we read in Matthew 27, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God ripped this curtain from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That's what happened when Jesus died for our sins. Access was been, has been given. We can draw near to God. That's what our focus on prayer is about, drawing near to God. We have been given a gift to draw into God's presence, and so many of us just sort of sit back and look and observe. We have been offered the gift through Jesus' indestructible life of drawing near to God. Romans chapter 5 puts it this way. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, always through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There comes that hope. When we can draw near to God, when we have peace with him and we can draw into his presence, we begin to be filled with hope. We have been told that this is coming back in chapter 4, verse 16. Let me just read this. Because we have such a great high priest who sympathizes with us and yet without sin, let us then be with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help time of need. That was chapter 4. Now in chapter 7, we realize that it's through the indestructible life of Jesus that we now have a better hope, and through him we can draw near to God. What an amazing gift. This better hope is better because through Jesus we draw near to God. We are not separated. We're not kept at a distance. Secondly, it's a better hope because it is certified by God's oath. Now, God never lies. So there's no need for God to give a promise. He, he gives a promise. He swears an oath simply because this is of such importance. He wants it to sink into us. So what, what does he say about his oath? Look at, look at verse 20. It was not with an oath for the, that the earlier priests became priests. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, and here is the oath, the Lord has sworn, he swears an oath, and he will never change his mind. You are a priest forever. That's Psalm 110, verse 4, which has been quoted over and over and over and over again already in Hebrews. God swears an oath. When the Levites were set apart, to, to play their role, and Aaron's family was set apart to be the priests and the high priests. This is what God said, Exodus 28. There is no oath. It's simply a command. God said to Moses, Exodus 28, verse 1, bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with you from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Just do it. They're my priests. But when God sets Jesus apart, the Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He makes an oath, not because God lies, 
He makes an oath to help us realize that this priesthood of Jesus is going to last forever. It will never change. It's completely distinct. It's completely different. He has been appointed by God. He is, it is certified not only by God's word, but actually by God's oath. He is a priest forever. That word forever has been spoken to us over and over and over and over again. Let me just read for you a couple examples. You can look if you want, but we're going to go fast. Back at chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse 6. He says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Down to verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6 and verse 10. God is not unjust to overlook your works, those who've shown his name serving the saints as you do. Whoops, that's the wrong verse, sorry. Um, chapter 6, verse 20. Let's run down to verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7, verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood under it, people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And then verse 17. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 21. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind you are a priest forever. There is never a need for another priest. Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus alone is the high priest. But did you notice something that changed in verse 21? Let me read verse 17 and the verse, verse 21, the quoting the same verse in the Old Testament. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, backed up in chapter 10, 110 of Psalm. You are a priest forever. It drops after the order of Melchizedek. All the way through here, some of you are probably getting tired of this guy's name, Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. Well, it just drops. And there's a reason for that. You see, Melchizedek was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. Melchizedek was the type. Jesus is the antitype. Melchizedek's role was to point to Jesus Jesus has now come. Melchizedek disappears from the scene. And so his, that last part of that verse from Psalm 110, verse 4, it's just dropped. You, Jesus, are a priest forever. The personal name of Jesus is used. That's very rare in Hebrews. Why? In Hebrews chapter 1, he's called the Son the end of chapter 1, he's called the king. Then he's called the priest, and he's called the high priest. And now we have his name, Jesus, verse 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor. Why is his name spoken here? To make sure that there is no question of who this is. And you know what's even cooler? If you were to read this in the original Hebrew, Jesus is the last word of a really long sentence. So it would say something like this if we're just taking verse 22, but the sentence begins way before that. The guarantor of this much better covenant is Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus, and it all stops with him. He is a priest forever. 
so important that God has certified it by an oath. This is a better hope because we can draw near to God through Jesus' indestructible life and his high priesthood for us. He gives us a better hope because it's actually certified by God's own oath, and it's a better hope because Jesus is the guarantor. Jesus guarantees it. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. A guarantee is only as good as the one standing behind it, right? I mean, I know a family recently who, whose home was ravaged by hurricanes down south, and they had it insured, but the insurance company went belly up because of so many expenses. doesn't help you if you get your house insured, but the insurance company goes belly up. But for Jesus, he has an indestructible life. And with his indestructible life, he guarantees this new covenant, this new agreement between God and men. And this new agreement is all, is all based on what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And so it is absolutely sure it's already completed on our behalf for us. The word guarantor arrives here first and only here in the New Testament. There's no other place when you find this word. Jesus is the one who stands behind this promise that he will stand between us and holy God and represent us to holy God. And because his life is indestructible and he is high, his, our high priest, he offers us an eternal salvation, chapter 5 and verse 9. And he has instituted a brand new covenant, not based on what we do, like the old law, make sure you obey these commandments, but based on what he has done. This covenant is written in his blood, and then it is certified by his indestructible life because he laid his life down, he was buried, he rose again because of his indestructible life, and now he is exalted, as we just heard in the verses that were read, as high king and as high priest, and because he certifies and guarantees this new covenant, he has done it all, it is all on him, we are absolutely secure. Now, the word covenant appears here for the first time in Hebrews. Like you got tired of Melchizedek, and now Melchizedek disappears from the scene, we're going to hear covenant all the way for the next year. What is this new covenant like? How amazing this new covenant is. What does this mean for us? He offers us a new hope, and it's a much better hope. Well, I wonder if there's someone, if there's somebody who walked into this room today really discouraged, without a lot of hope. Maybe you've been disappointed, disappointed by people around you, disappointed by people you thought you could trust, maybe disappointed by your job, maybe disappointed and discouraged because of something that you found out that's going on in your body that you have very little control over. Real hope is anchored in Jesus alone. He offers life in place of death. He offers joy in place of sadness. He offers us a future, not just looking back at a past that we think was better. 
Or maybe you walked in here this morning or as you sit here right now, you feel overwhelmed by your own failures. Overwhelmed by your inability to get things done the way you want. You want to do the right thing and you find you fail. You've let down the people you love the most. Maybe you realize you've failed and let down God. You haven't lived up to His standards and none of us have. And guilt overwhelms you and you just feel like, you know, I, should, I know better. I had the opportunity not to do that. I did it, and I did it again, and I did it again, and I am guilty, and I am a sinner, and God has no need to forgive a jerk like me. Jesus offers you hope, not based in your failures and not based in your successes, but in his own indestructible life that he fulfilled the covenant of the Old Testament that you and I could not fulfill. He pleased the Father perfectly on our behalf, and then he paid the price that we deserve. All we need to do is trust him. Believe him in his life, not ours, in his righteousness, not ours, and ask him to forgive us for our sins. Believers, those of us who have known Jesus as our Savior, we of all people ought to be the most hope-filled people on earth. No matter what is going on, we have a better hope than anyone else. I love Howard Hendricks, a professor at, at Dallas Seminary years ago. I was listening to him once in Scotland when I was studying there, and he said, you know, sometimes Christians will say, well, under the circumstances, he says, what on earth are you under the circumstances for? We're under Christ. We're under Christ. We're not under circumstances. Circumstances do not take away our hope. Our hope is based in Jesus. The events of this world, the fact that our country is slipping away from its roots grounded in Scripture should never drag us down or discourage us. Our hope is not here. Our hope is not in America. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And so Colossians puts it this way. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Real hope is anchored in Jesus and only in Jesus. Enduring hope is anchored in Jesus. Hope that thrives when the enemy attacks us is grounded and anchored in Jesus. Hope that soars above the chaos of this world is anchored in Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you offer us not just hope, but a better hope, a hope that is guaranteed by what you have already accomplished and already won. You lived the perfect life. You fulfilled the law for us. You paid our, the penalty for our sins completely by dying for us, but you rose again, and you are now exalted as high king and high priest. You alone are our hope. We thank you and we pray that we would live with that hope every moment. And Lord, if there's somebody who walked into this room this morning without hope, I pray that they would turn their eyes to you this morning and put their hope in you alone. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.